Numbers chapter 18. Let's try that. We've been going through the book of Numbers together. We last week looked at chapter 16 and 17 and really saw a time in the history of the nation of Israel where they really began to challenge the authority of the Lord in the sense of how that related to his appointing and working, particularly through Moses and Aaron. And remember, we're told in chapter 16 how this man, Korah, uh, together with an individual named Dathan and Abiram, these were actually sons of Levi, so these were actually relatives uh, of Moses and Aaron. They were from the tribe of Levi, and together with a group of about 250 other prominent leaders in Israel, how they rallied together in this act of rebellion and with uh, selfish ambitions in their hearts and wanting attention wanting prominence, wanting more uh, glory and position, they then came and began to uh, uh, challenge and question the authority of Moses and Aaron saying, you take too much to yourselves and we're all just as holy as you are and why do you think you should have the right to call the shots and to be in charge and provide leadership? And they began to contend with Moses and Aaron and really what they were after we saw is that they were seeking the role of the priesthood. They already had a ministry. They were Levites. Uh, they were from the tribe of Kohath, so they had the opportunity already to participate in God's work. They did have a level of responsibility in ministry, but the selfish ambition in their hearts and the envy made them want something more beyond the sphere of what God had allowed for them. And they were striving after greater position, greater authority, more opportunity, if you would, a greater realm of leadership. And so because of that, uh, this incredible problematic situation arose among the camp of Israel. And Moses had to deal with this and address it. The anger of the Lord was aroused. And remember, ultimately, it did not fare too well for those who rebelled against the established authority of God. And again, their rebellion was not against Aaron and Moses specifically. The Bible made it clear their, their heart issue was against rebelling what God had established. God had appointed them. Uh, there was nothing special about Moses and Aaron other than the fact that God, by his sovereign choice, elected them. He chose them. He put them in the position that he did. And so their rebellion was really seen as rebellion against God's authority and what God was doing to work among his people. And ultimately, we saw that incredible instance where uh, the, the earth actually opened up and uh, swallowed down these individuals and closed over top of them. And then ultimately the people then the next day began to complain as well. And, uh, and then uh, the fire of the Lord consumed the 250 men. And then ultimately over 14,000 people we saw actually died as this sort of rebellious spirit began to become contagious and move among people. And, you know, there's always, unfortunately, just like cancer that spreads and attacks other areas of the body, uh, you know, bad attitudes and rebellion and mischief. And I mean, these kind of things, they're just contagious and they spread. And uh, whether it's among a group of friends that one person begins to move in a bad direction and all of a sudden everybody else, you know, kind of begin to move in that same way because of the pressures or thinking that they're on to something or even among, obviously, congregations of God's people. Uh, people can begin to become, you know, unhealthy spiritually and they can begin to have an incredible infectious uh, uh, sort of effect upon others in, in the camp and congregation of God as well. And, and tragically, as the result of that rebellion, thousands and thousands of lives were lost because of the rebellion that was happening among them. So what then happened in chapter 17 is God then made it very clear as he reaffirmed the call of God and his selection of Aaron to be his priest and the line of Aaron's family to be the priesthood. He calls that staff, remember, that was just a lifeless stick to spring to life and to bud and to produce fruit. And God confirmed in the 17th chapter how he had indeed selected Aaron and his family to be the priesthood and he had called them to that role and he just confirmed that through that miraculous work of causing that rod to blossom and to bring forth fruit in a supernatural way and then told Moses to then keep that budded rod as a sign to put it inside of the ark 
uh, as a sign against that rebellion so that it wouldn't happen again. Remember, ultimately, God told uh, Moses to put three things with inside the Ark of the Covenant. It was the the golden uh, pot of manna. It was the tablets of stone in which the commandments were written upon as well as this budded staff of Aaron and, and, and just a way to remind the people of God of times of failure in their lives and to be assigned to them. These three things we even see in the book of Hebrews were put and kept within the Ark of the Covenant. Now, after this incredible experience and God challenging and dealing very strongly, severely with the rebellion of those who rebelled against his authority, the people have a very concerned reaction now. Uh, In fact, if you look just back at the end of chapter 17, when the Lord has very severely now dealt with rebellion, verse 12 of chapter 17 says, the children of Israel spoke to Moses saying, surely we die. We perish, we all perish. Whoever comes near the tabernacle of the Lord must die. Shall we all utterly die? Now, uh, nothing new under the sun. They're much like us. This is a tremendous overreaction now. Yes, God has just brought discipline and judgment. Yes, he very severely has just dealt with the sin of the people that was happening and lots of lives were lost. But notice sort of the flying to the extreme happens here as can often be the case with many of us they begin to say oh no we're all going to die that's it we're all going to perish nobody can even get near the place of worship anymore without potentially losing their life so the people become very fearful if you would of the authority in the presence of God and they're realizing uh, that they're prone towards being rebellious they realize they're prone towards sinfulness and that God is a holy and powerful God they're reminded of once again so they're now fearful fear the fear of God strikes into their hearts and that's not a bad thing Uh, but what God does now here in the 18th chapter is he speaks again to Aaron to reinforce to him Uh, that his God-ordained responsibility as the priesthood, him and his sons, would be to help the people spiritually so that they could then avoid sin and to avoid rebellion. All of people are prone towards sin and rebellion. So what God does in the 18th chapter now is the people are struck with fear and trepidation because of the power of God they just saw. God now speaks to Aaron and says, look, Aaron, I want you to remember it is your ordained responsibility in that privileged position of ministry to faithfully serve in that capacity to keep the people from rebellion, to help to deter the people from sin that they might commit in a further way. So after that happens, verse 1 of chapter 18 says, Then the Lord said to Aaron, and take notice now, God speaking to Aaron, one of only a few occasions when God speaks directly to Aaron You want to take note of that because typically God speaks to Moses and then Moses will speak to Aaron. But here God's communicating directly something very personal to Aaron himself. Only happens on a few occasions we find it in the scripture. But what a great reminder of this. You know, sometimes we become very prone to hearing God's voice through a Moses, through someone else. And I Look, it's wonderful that the Lord works in that way. There are people in my life, I'm a Bible study addict, I confess, whether I'm in my car or on my iPhone or my computer, I love to hear the Word of God taught. And, and, and I love to listen to, to, to the word of God being expounded. I have for many, many years and to this day still. And, and I love to hear God's voice. And many times I hear God's voice through the teaching of someone else and through some of the Moseses and pastors and spiritual leaders that God puts in my life and that I seek to learn from. But you know, the wonderful thing is there are times in our lives too when the Lord doesn't need to speak through someone else that he wants to speak directly to us in a very personal way, maybe a timely word, some word of the Lord that he wants to say directly to us. And I appreciate that here the Bible records instances. We don't know how many, but they're very few. But there are times when we see the Lord spoke directly to Aaron. It wasn't always to Moses, then speak to Aaron. Here the Lord speaks directly to Aaron. And you know what? I would encourage you, ask the Lord at times to speak a word directly to you that you would know that you heard his voice you didn't have to hear it through anybody else no other channel that it have to come through but that you know that god said something directly to you i love what uh, you know samuel ends up saying in his early days even as a young man 
uh, as he's there being trained in the temple uh, and his overseer says to him, he says, look, you're hearing the voice of the Lord. And he says, I'm not calling you. Remember, the priest kept, he kept saying, well, well, what is it? What do you want? He kept waking up from the dream because he'd hear Samuel, Samuel. And he'd run in and say, well, what, do you, what do you want? And he was used to relating to a spiritual authority in his life. And he says, look, the Lord's trying to speak to you. Next time you hear your name, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And he was trying to teach him, even as a young man in the temple, he was saying, look, even as a young man, you can hear God for yourself. God's trying to talk to you. He's trying to speak to you in a personal way. And here the Lord is giving a personal direct word to Aaron. And he speaks to him saying this, you and your sons and your father's house shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. This had just happened in our prior chapters. And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. Also, he says, bring with you and your brethren the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while your sons are with you before the tabernacle of witness. And they shall attend to your needs and all the needs of the tabernacle, but they shall not come near the articles of the sanctuary and the altar lest they die and they and you also. So again, God's reminding them that the people could not just casually come right into the presence of God because God was a holy God. And again, this is a good foundation God was laying for the people. And he lays even for us that, that in that day, understand prior to the time of Christ, people could not have direct access into the presence of God. You could not just casually barge right into God's presence in the same way that you can't just try and make a beeline across the White House lawn and think you're going to have direct uh, audience with the presidents of the United States. Of course, there's, that, there's a reason you can't do that because, well, look, if you can't do that, why would people ever be crazy enough to think? That they can relate to God like just a man upstairs, you know, like as if somehow we could just casually intrude into the presence of God. And God wanted the people to understand the incredible holiness and awesomeness of who he was. And he was building this all throughout the Old Testament time with the veil that was there and reminders like this. Look, people can't just draw near. Now, thankfully, through Jesus Christ, now through him as our intercessor and our mediator, we can draw near to God but the only way is if we draw near through Jesus and through his blood. And he gives us access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. But we see this repeated. And notice you'll see this language even in this chapter continually reminded that they, if they drew near in a way they weren't supposed to, uh, death would be the result of that. He says, they shall be joined with you and attend to the needs of the tabernacle of meeting for all the work verse 4 of the tabernacle but again look at it an outsider shall not come near you and you shall verse 5 attend to the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar that there may be no more wrath on the children of Israel now again notice verse 5 here here's what's going on here he says that you he's talking to Aaron and, and, and your relatives, the priestly line, you shall attend the duties of the sanctuary and the duties of the altar. Here's why, God says. You need to be faithfully attending to your priestly ministry responsibilities and role so that there will be no more wrath on the children of Israel. In the prior chapter, we read that the wrath of the Lord, remember, in that plague came out against the people because of their sin and rebellion against God. Remember, that was when Moses told Aaron, Aaron, quick, get a censer and go and run in and do what you need to do to stand between the living and the dead so that the plague could be stopped, so that the wrath of God could be restrained as it was coming against the people. Well, look, God doesn't want to pour out his wrath against his people. God doesn't want to see his people sin and rebel, though we're prone to that and we all make mistakes. So God does this. He puts an injunction now upon Aaron and his sons in these first five verses, reminding them their appointment does not just mean that they hold spiritual authority, but it also means that they have a tremendous role of spiritual responsibility. With their spiritual authority, which was what was challenged in chapter 16 and 17, God's now saying in chapter 18 here, look, yes, you have authority. You have the authority of God. You have God's authority in your life to serve in that function, in that role, and you have the freedom to exercise that authority on God's behalf. 
But he says that authority is given to you, as Paul said, not for destruction, but for edification, to help people spiritually, to keep them from sin, to hold them back from rebellion. These appointed spiritual leaders, God says to them here in verse 1, you are going to bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. What God is doing is saying, look, to Aaron, as the spiritual leaders appointed in that role, they would be responsible for the purity of the ministry of the tabernacle uh, where they would assemble to worship and the healthy atmosphere of the congregation. It was the role of Aaron and his sons as the priests among God's people to serve in a way whereby they would deal with the sin and the propensity to sin among the congregation of God's people. And it was their responsibility, God is saying, you're going to bear the iniquity, the iniquity against the sanctuary that the people had just committed in the prior chapters. God's saying, look, I don't want that to be a repetitious thing. So he says, you have a very heavy responsibility in your priesthood. It is your role to do what you do faithfully to, in a sense, help the spiritual condition of the people in the congregation. It was the role of the priests and the spiritual leaders to make sure that God was being honored in the way that he was being worshipped, to make sure that God was being worshipped correctly, to make sure that the truth of God's word was being taught to the people and his truth was being upheld and uh, that no defilement was being permitted or tolerated amidst the assembly, that people didn't casually press into the presence of God in a way whereby then God would have to deal with them. So as they faithfully perform their ministry duties, then people would be more healthy spiritually and the wrath of God would be restrained and God's people would be pleasing to him and living holy lives as they should. But God said, this is your responsibility in the priesthood. As the spiritual leaders, this was their responsibility. God held them responsible for the spiritual condition of the congregation of God's people. And the same really is the responsibility of spiritual leaders today in the church. Whether it's pastors or elders and spiritual leaders within the church, that is the role and the responsibility of the spiritual leaders. Those given authority and responsibility from God to shepherd the flock of God, their responsibility, our responsibility, is to take serious the spiritual condition of God's people. It is the responsibility of spiritual leaders to look after the condition of people's souls and to teach people faithfully the word of God and to explain how God is to be worshipped and to do whatever is necessary to help the people develop spiritually and to keep them from carnality in spiritual life. And that same responsibility falls upon spiritual leaders within the church today and here god says look you need to attend verse 5 he says to your duties in the sanctuary so that the wrath of god is held off and as pastors and elders and spiritual leaders it is imperative that spiritual leaders and those in places of authority that god gives exercise their ministry faithfully teaching the word dealing with sin so that god's people are pleasing to him it is a tremendous tragedy when spiritual leaders default in their role and their responsibility for whatever underlying reasons and allow God's people in the congregation to become carnal and to become like infants in a nursery and never arriving to spiritual maturity or allowing there to be compromise. It is the role of the the. the, the spiritual leaders to develop people spiritually to have them healthy and strong and to keep sin out of the camp so that god is pleased and the people of god are holy in his presence verse six he then goes on to say and behold i myself aaron have taken your brethren the levites from among the children of israel and he says to them they are a gift to you given by the lord to do the work of the tabernacle of meeting Therefore, you and your sons, you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service, but the outsider, again, God says, who comes near, the idea is someone outside the line of Aaron, shall be put to death. So here in verses 6 and 7, much like we saw back in Numbers chapter 8, God reminds Aaron and his sons now, he says to Aaron that the Levites, the tribe of Levi, were given by God to assist the priests in their ministry. 
He says to them here in verse 6, Look, I have given to you as a gift the entire tribe of Levi, he says, I've given them as a gift to you to do the work of the tabernacle of the meeting. They were supplied to Aaron and his sons in the priesthood, basically to help in attending to all the manual work and the practical duties that were involved in the ministry of the tabernacle. God says, I've given them to you as a gift so that you can then focus on your primary calling in the priesthood. I've given them to you as a gift to help assist and to uphold what you're doing. So uh, God offers this as a blessing to them. And then he also reminds them in verse seven how their ministry calling and priesthood itself was a gift from the Lord. He says, verse seven there, I give you your priesthood to you as a gift of service. Take notice, the, the idea of the priesthood, that was their ministry position or their function. And God says, I've given you your ministry responsibility as a gift of service. Boy, I think that's a great reminder because you know, sometimes we can forget that any opportunity of service for the Lord, whatever our ministry function is, whatever the ministry position God puts us into, to forget that that is actually a gift from the Lord, that it's a privilege to get to serve the Lord. And God here is reminding Aaron and his sons, look, the fact that you get to serve in the priesthood, that's a gift, you know, you don't deserve that. You're not entitled to that. It's, it's not something that's because you're special. It's a gift of service. It's a, it's a blessing to be able to serve in that capacity. And so important for us when we serve the Lord in any role. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. We all, in a sense, have a, a priestly ministry as Christians. That we, we stand as... Uh, intermediaries between God and the world and we reflect Jesus to the world and we bring the world to Jesus and, and, and that's a gift from the Lord. It's a privilege. It's a tremendous opportunity. It's something that we should deeply appreciate and view it as, Lord, what a gift that I get to serve you in this way and that I get to have the opportunity and so important, I think, that we keep that mentality. Here, God's reminding Aaron and his sons that it's a gift that they get to serve as priests in the way that they do. Now, verse 8, all the way down through verse 20 or so, is basically a description of how the priests would receive their compensation or their salary in a way that they were then supported with the necessary provision they needed to perform their ministry functions with their full-time attention. So we'll, we'll just read down through it and take note of a few things, but that's basically what God is re-emphasizing here. In a way, even as he already has before, he just reiterates it once again here in this chapter. It says, verse 8, And the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Here, I myself have also given you the charge of my heave offerings. All the holy gifts of the children of Israel I have given them, notice, as a portion to you and your sons as an ordinance forever. So a portion of what was brought in offerings to the Lord, a portion of that, a percentage was set aside to supply Aaron and his family for their ministry. This shall be yours of the most holy things reserved from the fire. Every offering of theirs, every grain offering and sin offering and trespass offering which they render to me shall be most holy for you and your sons. So again, notice the offerings were given to God and then God was the one that determined a portion was then to be set aside and supplied to those who served in the priesthood. Verse 10, in a most holy place you shall eat it. Every male shall eat it and it shall be holy to you. This also is yours, God says, the heave offering of their gift with all the wave offerings of the children of Israel. I've given them to you and to your sons and your daughters with you as an ordinance forever. Everyone who's clean in your house may eat it and all the best of the oil and all the best of the new wine and the grain, their first fruits, which they offer to the Lord, I have given them to you. Whatever first ripe fruit is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Everyone who is clean in your house may eat it. And every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Everything that first opens the womb of all flesh, which they bring to the Lord. So all the first fruits that were brought, whether from their crops, as they would bring their first fruit offering to God, or also now from their flocks and their herds, God says, whether man or beast 
shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem. And the firstborn of the unclean animals you shall redeem. And those redeemed, the devoted things, you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuation for five shekels of silver, according to the shekel sanctuary, which is 20 jeras. We talked about that before, how the firstborn uh, of, of a, a child or so forth, they could redeem back. In a sense, they were purchasing it back from the Lord by giving a monetary gift so that the life uh, could remain because God claimed that he was the one uh, who had ownership over all the firstborn. So this was a way they could redeem it back by the, making this offering. Verse 17, but the firstborn of a cow, the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They are holy. The eye is reserved unto God. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar, burn their fat as an offering made by fire for a sweet aroma to the Lord and their flesh shall be yours just as the wave breast and the right thigh are yours and all the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord. Again, verse 19, God says, I have given them, he said repetitiously to you, Aaron, and to your sons and your daughters. So it was provision not only for him, but for his entire family to care for his household with you and ordinance forever. He says, it is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants. So what God is doing here again is he's prescribing a set portion clearly labeled out in his word there with specifics, a set portion that was to be given to Aaron and to his sons and to his daughters that would be provision for them out of what was given as offerings unto the Lord, what the people would bring. God gave a clear, very clear protocol there. Okay, this portion of it is to then be given to Aaron and to his sons. Now, uh, this is compensation for their spiritual labors in the ministry. And, and I think there's twofold reason for this. First of all, it was to make sure that they were adequately supplied. That as they gave themselves full time to the attention and the work of the ministry, that they were adequately supplied. God here prescribed very clearly that this portion was to be given to them. But I think what also is here as well, and many times we don't think about, by God prescribing what was to be given to the priests for their service, what this also did was this made sure that the priests from this point or forward could never in a sense set their own rates for their spiritual service. And here God was guarding against the evil propensity even in the heart of people who can be in ministry by saying, no, I set your rate. <laughs> You're not going to set your own rate and start charging people for spiritual service and how much you're worth or how much you're entitled to. No, God says, look, I'll make sure you're taken care of. But don't let the perversion of your own heart make you start to think you're entitled to something and therefore you're going to begin to, well, I'll come, but for this much. I'll do your offering, but for this much. God says, no, that's not how we're going to work this. How about I'll just make sure you're taken care of. It's laid out and don't go seeking for anything extra. Again, it's interesting how in the New Testament, even 1 Peter 5 speaks about how those who are called to shepherd the flock of God are not to be in it. It's, it says for, for filthy lucre. Interesting how God uses that word in the, in the old King James. You know, they're not to be in it for monetary gain. You know, there's something very perverse in a human heart. God lays out in his word that those who serve in the ministry can be compensated for what they do. But God also says that should never be the motivator. That should never be the thing that drives a person or becomes the primary issue. So God here establishes this way of making provision. He says in verse 19 here, it shall be an ordinance forever, a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants. The idea of a covenant of salt in that day, again, salt was not primarily used for a flavor enhancer the way it is today when you take your salt and your pepper off the table and you you know, maybe load it on there. If the food's a little bland, you add salt to enhance flavor. In that day in the ancient culture, salt was primarily used as a preservative. They would heavily salt their fish and their meats because there was not refrigeration. If you didn't want bacteria to grow on your fish or meats, you would rub salt into the flesh of whether it was fish or meat to try and keep down the growth of bacteria. So it was a preservative that made things last longer. So a covenant of salt speaks of a covenant that endures, something that lasts. And God says, look, this isn't something I'm just saying temporarily. 
I want this to be an ongoing thing established so that the priesthood is cared for in this way. He then says, verse 20, to to Aaron specifically, then the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have, he says, no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion, God says, and your inheritance among the children of Israel. So, Again, remember when they go into the promised land and then under the days of Joshua, they then begin to get assigned different territories. The, the tribe of Levi and the priests, they did not get a inheritance of land. They didn't get farmlands and fields to work like all the rest of the tribes of Israel did. So God says, you're not going to get an inheritance like everyone else in the land, nor a portion going to be allotted to you. But the Lord says to them, but I am your portion and I'm your inheritance. He says, you're not going to get what others get. You're not going to live the way other people live. But I'm going to satisfy you with myself. I'll be your portion. I'll be your inheritance. And you know what? Again, as the Bible speaks in the New Testament of us as priests spiritually, in a sense that we're a royal generation, a chosen priesthood, Look, the Bible does not, in the way Israel was promised land and inheritance, the Bible does not promise Christians physical and material blessing. It's a shame that some teachings begin to convey the idea to people, uh, really, to live in an inferior way that being a, a solid spiritual person is about wealth and blessing and health and prosperity. You know, that is encouraging Christians to live on a lower plane. The Bible doesn't promise us a physical inheritance or a physical portion on this earth. That was for Israel. The Bible's promised us a spiritual inheritance and that our portion is the Lord and that we have a heavenly inheritance that we look forward to. And man, what a wonderful thing when we can come to a place where we say, yeah, you know what? I may not have what they do and I may not have what others do, but what I have, my inheritance is so much greater. And my portion is the Lord. And you know, Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. There's a great gain that when you as a person, because look, I understand, we all have needs. We all have needs, we all have desires, we all long for certain things. And there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But when you can come to a place in your life as an individual, when the Lord can be the portion of your life and he's enough, now, your portion is what you put on your plate and you say, that, that's what I need. That's what I need. You put your portion on when you eat. Him. That, that, how big of a portion do you need? And some of us need this size. Some of us need this size. Some of us should be cutting back maybe our portion a little bit. But spiritually, look, there are hungers and drives and needs in our lives. I understand they're all, but listen, it's a wonderful thing when you can say, Lord, you're my portion. And the Lord says to us, I'm your portion. Can I be enough? Can I be enough? Because see, the wonderful thing is this. When the Lord becomes enough in your life, it's amazing. It's amazing how certain things then begin to just not be so important anymore. And it's not so much about what do I need to have? It's what can I live without? Because the Lord's my portion. The Lord's sufficient. The Lord's enough. And therefore, it's amazing how when the Lord becomes your satisfaction, how you don't find yourself yearning for the things that other people need to have and crave for, that you can find a contentment in just the Lord himself in your life. He says then, verse 21, Behold, I've given the children of Levi all the tithes in Israel as an inheritance, notice, in return for the work of which they performed. So this was remuneration for the work which they performed, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. Hereafter, the children of Israel shall not come near the tabernacle of meeting. God says again, lest they bear sin and die. But the Levites, the tribe of Levi, shall perform the work of the tabernacle of meeting and they shall bear their iniquity and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations among the children of Israel. They shall have no inheritance For the tithes of the children of Israel, which they offer up as a heave offering to the Lord, I've given to the Levites as an inheritance. Therefore, I have said to them among the children of Israel that they shall have no inheritance. So here, verse 21 through 24, God speaking of how the Levites were to receive the tithe, the portion that was brought, a tenth 
of whatever their increase was that was brought to the Lord, that those tithes of the children of Israel, it says, that God had given them to the Levites. He had supplied those things to the Levites for them to be compensated for. Now, again, this concept of supplying spiritual uh, you know, offerings that are given to the Lord as provision for spiritual workers is a New Testament principle as well. In fact, Paul relates to these very passages in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13 and 14, where he says, Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So Paul here equates again this understanding from the Old Testament to apply a New Testament principle that speaks of the same principle being carried on in the Lord's work. Verse 25, it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak thus to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the children of Israel the tithes, which I have given you from them as your inheritance, then, take notice this, verse 26, then, after you receive the tithes, you shall offer up a heave offering of it to the Lord, a tenth of the tithe. The idea is they were to give a tithe, on the tithe which they had some then received. And your heave offering shall be reckoned to you as though it were a grain of the threshing floor as the fullness of the winepress. And you shall also offer a heave offering to the Lord from all your tithes which you receive from the children of Israel. You shall give the Lord's heave offering from it to Aaron the priest. Of all your gifts, verse 29, you shall offer up every heave offering due to the Lord from the best of them, the consecrated part of them. Therefore you shall say to them when you have lifted up the best of it, that the rest shall be accounted to the Levites as the produce of the threshing floor and the produce of the winepress. You may eat it in any place, you and your households, for it is, again, God says, your reward for your work. Again, God always rewards his workers. He'll never let anyone serve in a way they don't receive reward from him. He takes note. Verse 32, and you shall bear no sin because of it when you have lifted up the best of it, but you shall not profane the holy gifts of the children of Israel lest you die. So here, take notice of this other instruction God gives. We see it in verse 26. It's reiterated again there in verse 28, again in verse 29. God now tells the Levites, the ministers who receive the tithe that the people brought to the Lord as their compensation. He then instructs them, once you receive the tithe, he said, you're then to give a tenth of the tithe back to the Lord yourself. In other words, what God was saying to the leaders and the ministers who received compensation is he's saying, look, you then are to then in turn give out of what has been given to you back to the Lord as well. The principle God's establishing is very simply this, is that in God's family, everybody gives. Everybody gives. Everyone needs to give and should be givers in some capacity. And I think God here is pointing out the fact here with the Levites that they were to give a tithe of the tithe that they received that leaders should be the ones who lead the way in giving because leaders are supposed to be examples. So therefore leaders above all else should be the ones who manage and handle the resources and the finances that God blesses them with in a way that is above reproach before anybody else to demonstrate that they understand the source. If there was anybody who should have clearly sensed the resources I'm receiving to provide for me and my family are coming from God, certainly it should be the Levites because of the way they received it. They received from the very offerings that the people brought. So God is saying here, look, as an act of that, then render that back to me. Now again, we read the word tithe in the Bible and people you know, have lots of different ideas and perspectives. I would say if you want a New Testament perspective on giving, because I don't believe the New Testament mandates tithing, the Old Testament taught that very clearly. It was a regulation. But in the New Testament, under the grace of God, the Bible speaks of giving, giving. And when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, there's a chapter there that gives principles in regards to how we're to give. That we're to give in a way that is sacrificial. We're to give in a way that's consistent. We're to give in a way whereby we purpose in our heart in advance what we want to give to the Lord, not reluctantly, not, the Bible says, not out of necessity, 
because we feel like that we have to give or there's a need, but that we have an understanding that God has cared for us, he's blessed us, and according to how we prosper, we pray it through, we discern in our heart, Lord, this is what I want to do, this is what I can afford to do, and in some way we then render back to the Lord consistently a form of giving back to him. So you can read through Second Corinthians chapter 9 and First Corinthians chapter 16. These are passages that speak of how we are to be givers as well from a New Testament perspective. Now, chapter 19 deals with what's often called the law of the red heifer. How many people have already heard of that before? The, the red heifer, right? Uh, you even see some of this in the news, some of the things that are addressing, especially those who are concerned about the rebuilding of the, the new temple there in Jerusalem. They want to pre you know, prepare a, a, another temple uh, ultimately. And, and they really are, as a result of that, looking for a red heifer to be able to consecrate this rebuilt temple. Well, Here's what God is basically doing in chapter 19. God is establishing a ceremonial provision of how to handle all the death that would happen among the nation of Israel. How many people just died with that great rebellion? Do you remember? Over 14,000 people. Now, on top of that, I want you to think about this. As they're traveling through the wilderness, God said that over a 40-year period, what would happen? All those over 20 years old and above God said we're going to die, the whole generation. Now, there were perhaps two to three million people in the congregation of Israel. So let's just say, theoretically, that half of the population at that point in time was 20 years old and above. I think it's pretty conservative if half the population is between 20 and 70 or whatever, and, and the rest is all under 20. And God said everyone over 20 and above is going to die. So let's just say if half of a population of 3 million people were going to die over a 38-year period, that's 1.5 million people. 1.5 million people dying over a 38-year period is an average of about 85 people a day dying. That's a lot of death. That's a lot of people dying. So what God does now is he institutes a way to deal with the death that was happening there among the nation of Israel and he establishes now an ordinance how they could address this by establishing this ordinance of the red heifer here. So let's just look at it a little bit. If we don't finish it this evening, that's, that's fine. But God is now establishing a way to deal with this issue of death uh, so they would know how to handle it as they came into contact with a lot, a lot of death. It says, verse 1, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring you a red heifer without blemish. Now, now take notice, some of these things should be triggering in your mind by the Holy Spirit as you see the description of this ordinance God establishes here. You should begin to see glimmers of Christ as you look through some of these things. They were to bring a red heifer without blemish, in which there is no defect, so no external problem, no internal blemishes or defects, either outside or inside, in which there is no defect and on which no yoke has ever come. In other words, it was to be an animal that had never been under the yoke of, of a, a wooden yoke that was put on it and then was then controlled and worked in a field, it had never been, in a sense, controlled or governed by man. It was something that had us free of ever being governed and influenced by men. And you shall give that animal to Eliezer the priest. He may take it outside the camp and it shall be slaughtered before him. So notice, the priest did not slaughter the animal. The animal was slaughtered before the priest. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood then with his finger and sprinkle some of the blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. And the heifer shall be then burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood, its offal shall be burned. The idea is the entire animal, the entire being was, was consumed in a fire of judgment. And the priest shall take cedar wood, very interesting, Cedar is also known not only to be aromatic, but also known to be a wood that's uh, sort of impervious to rotting. So it has sort of a, uh, you know, a eternal quality in the minds of people when they think of cedar wood. It's something that lasts. It doesn't decay. So cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet red. 
and cast them into the midst of the fire of the burning heifer. And the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe in water. And afterward he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who then burns it shall wash his clothes in water and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And then a man who is clean, verse 9, shall gather up the ashes of that heifer and store them outside of the camp in a clean place and they shall then be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification for it is for purifying from sin and the one who gathers the ashes of that heifer shall then wash his clothes and be unclean until evening it shall be a statute forever for the children of Israel and to the stranger who dwells among them now verse 11 down through the chapter then begins to describe how this water of purification was to be used from this red heifer when people became ceremonially unclean because they came in contact with a dead body and it describes that this is what this uh, you know concoction or whatever you want to call it here was was created for so that when people came into contact with death and they would a lot and remember We've seen according to the law, when you came into contact with death, it rendered you ceremonially unclean or ritually unclean. You then could not worship freely. You could not serve God freely. So God creates this way now where this water of purification, it's called in verse nine for the purifying of sin with this red heifer that was sacrificed, the special animal and then burnt and consumed in the fire and mixed together with running water could then be kept outside of the camp and it was used very simply, very simplistically to just cleanse people from ceremonially un uh, ceremonial uncleanness whenever they came into contact with death. Now, as you look at this red heifer and the way that it was used in that day, and again, there was nothing magical about the blood of this heifer and the water and the hyssop and all these kind of things. It was very simply what God prescribed. God said, this is the way that I will allow people to be rendered ceremonially clean again so that they can worship me and serve me. God gave this provision that they simply obeyed what God said here by faith. God would cleanse them in the same way today that if people obey by faith the word of God, the one prescribed way to be cleansed and to be forgiven through Jesus Christ, a person can be cleansed of their sin by faith. It's because of the way that God has prescribed. But when you look at this red heifer and what's described here, it is almost difficult to not see the symbolism and the typology of how God is speaking in a very prophetic way of the life of his son Christ. You notice again that it's a red heifer without blemish or defect. The Bible says that Jesus had no spot or blemish. He was sinless. There was no inherent sin in Christ. There was no committed sin in Christ. There was never a yoke of man. There was never a time when man controlled Jesus. Jesus was always in absolute control. Jesus fulfilled the work and the will of his father. It says that this red heifer was to be taken outside of the camp and it was to be killed not by the priest, but before the priest. Again, how was Jesus put to death? He wasn't put to death by the priest. He was put to death by the Romans, but he was put to death by the Romans at the request of the priest and in the presence of the religious leaders who asked him to be crucified in that day. It says that this animal was burned. All of the entire animal was consumed under the fire of judgment, even as Jesus' life experienced the fires of the judgment of God. Verse 6 references the cedar wood. Again, is it a, is it a reference to the cross of Christ and the hyssop and the scarlet? And these things, as they're mingled together, then become the opportunity for cleansing. That there's a cleansing flow available in Christ. Uh, Hebrews 9 says this, shows you how the Bible indicates what this was to picture and to foreshadow the essential cleansing we need in Christ. Hebrews 9 says this, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh a ceremonial cleansing, how much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself without spot to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the writer of Hebrews sees this and looking back through the lens of spiritual eyes, he says, look, if the blood of bulls and goats 
And he says, in the sprinkling of those things, he says, the, the ashes of a heifer, what's referenced here in our text, he says, if that can purify a person ceremonially to make them clean so that they can worship God again in the tabernacle ministry and that they can serve God freely, he says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Man, what a wonderful thing that there is a much, much better cleansing flow that is available to you and I through the offering and the death of Jesus Christ. And, and I love how the writer of Hebrews says to cleanse our conscience. To cleanse our conscience. Listen, I guarantee in this room tonight, I don't care who you are, I don't care what your background was, how you came to Christ or where you're at right now, everybody in this room knows what it's like to struggle with guilt in your conscience. And guilt in your conscience is something that will eat at you and gnaw away at you and cause you to be driven into the ground. And listen, God does not want you to struggle with a guilty conscience. God wants you to look to the sacrifice of Christ and to realize the eternal Son of God poured out His blood so that you can be forgiven and free and that you can approach God not with your head hanging down as if you are so horrible or so unworthy but with your head lifted up the Lord says look I want to take away your guilty conscience and how wonderful that the Bible says to us in 1 John if we simply now confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, if you failed, if you have guilt in your conscience that you're holding on to, hear me tonight. That's not God's will. It's not God's will for you to struggle with a guilty conscience. God's will is for you to realize the sufficiency of what Jesus did on the cross and that he can cleanse and forgive you from any sin, any failure so that you can serve God freely and confidently and come to him directly and have relationship with him the way that he intends you to. I encourage you tonight, if your conscience is guilty as we enter back into a time of worship, to just pour out, Lord, I know I did this, I confess I did this, but I thank you, Lord. I worship you that you have forgiven this and there's no stain that God can't remove from your life. No stain. Do not let the devil lie to you about any failure or shortcoming. There's no stain that Christ cannot eradicate from your soul.